HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host today, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are continuing our two-part series looking at chefs and farms and chefs who are farmers. And so we are joined in the studio today by George Weld and Evan Hanser of uh, Parish Hall and Egg. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing great. Thanks for having us. Awesome. I guess also, more importantly, and you know, apropos to today's conversations of Goatfell Farm. So uh, I thought we would start out um, a little bit with a little bit of background on you guys for folks who maybe aren't super familiar with the restaurants. And I guess we'll start with you, George, if you okay. can tell us a little bit about Egg and, and what you guys do there and how you got started. Sure. Um, so we started Egg uh, about almost eight years ago, and uh, it started off sort of squatting in another restaurant. Um, so we were open in the mornings from 7 till noon and the other restaurant would come in and take over and we did that for about a year and a half and after after uh, we'd sort of gotten some momentum um, the other restaurant moved out and we took over um, and started serving uh, right through the right through the day and around the same time that we did that we also uh, bought bought a place upstate that we could use as a farm um, which came out of uh, probably out of a desire to I mean, it's sort of an old, old desire of mine to, to be farming, um, but it was also something that a lot of the people who worked at Egg were excited about and um, honestly kind of helped push us uh, over the fence, my wife and I, like, into actually committing to doing it. Um, so we started doing that um, in, I guess, 2000, 2007 or 2008, and uh, just sort of been growing the farm slowly and um, carefully ever since then, trying to trying to supply more and more stuff to the restaurants. Awesome. Well, I want to definitely come back and tuck into some more of those details. But Evan, when did you kind of come on board with the team? And can you give us a sense of like what's happening over at Parish Hall? Well, I came in to Egg at uh, the end of 2008, which was kind of the end of the first, I think, sort of real growing season that had been going on there. Um, Then the following year, one of the servers in the restaurant, uh, Chrissy, moved up to the farm and, and really started taking care of it full time, which she did for for two years. Um, so it was a really interesting time to be there because you know, egg. Had, when I first heard about egg, I'd heard about its commitment to you know, sustainable food and using local farms, but I was able to arrive at a time where that was starting to be uh, that relationship was being moved in house a little bit. Um, so I got to you know, it was amazing for me to you know, be able to go up to the farm, see these vegetables being grown have them delivered directly to the restaurant, um, have requests about what we wanted to grow. Um, and I think uh, over the couple of years um, that I was I was at Egg, and we had that relationship, um, the idea kind of based on our experience with that of, uh, of working closely with, with a farm that was ours led to um, a new restaurant, which, which was Parish Hall. Um, and so we opened 
parish hall last year, almost exactly a year ago. Um, it's been great. It's been really exciting. And the idea behind parish hall was to explore northeastern regional food with the same sort of sensibility and, and respect um, and creativity that egg approaches southern food. Um, and a, a big uh, motivation and inspiration for us was the farms in this region, the people we had met, you know, with a, uh, in the process of running our own farm, um, and kind of you know figuring out how to take the things that these people were producing, these amazing amazing products from meat to to dairy to, to vegetables, and uh, think about you know kind of like a new cuisine you know of this of this area and, and try to try to push that forward with with that as our starting point. Nice. So, George, when you kind of were looking, first looking around, you decided, okay, hey, we're going to really do this. We're going to buy a farm. I mean, what were some of your first stops? Did you just, like, Google land for sale? Or, <laughs> like, how did you kind of find a, a space to do the farm? Um, well, I mean, the fr- I think the first thing I did um, seriously was read through Elliot Coleman and, like, figure out... I, I mean, I, I really took took him um as a guide as far as like under, he, the new organic grower sort of as like big main book uh lays out very clear criteria for what you should look for in a farm so um i was looking for things that where the slope was just right and you know where the the growing area was on a plateau between a hill and a creek and stuff like that um and then i mean honestly like i was at the restaurant so much i didn't have much time to go hunting around so uh, my wife would spend the weekends driving around with our uh our two-year-old um, trying to find a place that, that struck her and coming back and saying, we're not looking at that place and you'll fall in love with it and I don't want to deal with it. Um, <laughs> but she finally, we finally found one place and it had, uh, the, the land was situated nicely. It was in a town that we had some familiarity with. Um, it had a smokehouse on it. It had a barn on it. Um, the house was in decent shape. Um, and there was enough land there. It looked like that uh, we could grow as much stuff as we were going to need to grow to supply the restaurant. So... Um, kind of just jumped in, and it was it was uh, right when the um, housing market began to collapse. So uh, I don't know if we timed it just right or like terribly, but <laughs> it was a it was an interesting it was an interesting time for a lot of reasons to get in on it. Um, uh, was it being farmed when you when it, you looked to purchase it? it or hadn't really been farmed. There's very little um, produce grown in that. We're in sort of the northeast part of Greene County, um, on the northeast side of the Catskills, not too far from Albany. It's very rocky or mountainous, and there, there's never been much vegetable production up there. So the people who had owned it before us had had kind of like hobby animals. They'd had horses for a while. They'd had pigs. Um, and when, when we were looking at it, they'd, sort of, they'd started to move to Florida, and they'd let the land lie fallow for at least a year. So it was just a gigantic lawn when we looked at it. I mean... It, literally like six acres of of shortcut grass they'd had their lawnmower um lowered after factory so they could keep the grass extra short it was like a putting green um so there wasn't anything going on there when we got there but when we started digging in the soil was really rich it had clearly been grazed before um we had a lot more topsoil than a lot of places in the area had um yeah but when i initially went around looking for deer fencing um nobody nobody had it because there was no demand for it in the area nobody like people raised dairy cattle they raised beef cattle but the deer um, weren't coming after the no, dairy yeah, they <laughs> <just below. laughs> hello yeah. um and what about financing i mean i know one of the biggest barriers for new farmers is is finding kind of capital to to purchase land and so how did you guys like support that aspect and did you run it through the restaurant business or is it do you own the farm, or what's the structure there? Yeah, we own. My wife and I own the farm, um, and the, it, in theory, the the restaurant rent leases the land and stuff from from us. Although there's, you know, it's really all theory. Um, mm-hmm. The, uh, so I mean, we. I mean, one of the one of the other things that led us into to look into it in the first place was, um, we we wanted to buy a place. We knew we could never afford anything in the city, so. Uh, I guess we afford it by having cheap rent here. <laughs> um, that's how we finance our just <laughs> <laughs> having a lucky landlord. <laughs> <laughs> and now, Evan, when you came onto the team at Egg, and then subsequently, you know, launched the operation at Parish Hall, did you have you did you have any background in 
growing food or do you come to it you know more strictly as a chef who's uh, you know kind of con- discerning consumer of kind of produce and, and proteins I definitely I came to it more as a, as a chef the only experience I had growing anything was having some raised beds in my in my parents backyard in Connecticut um, which I'd gotten into again from a chef's perspective like I wanted to have really you know I wanted to have the experience of growing food and have nice food you know um, that we were able to go into the backyard and pick um, I had I grew up in a town that was really small um, and had a few farms so I had experience like being around farms but I'd never had any experience working on one um, but uh, in traveling up there I I'm not a farmer by any stretch of the imagination, um, but I was a, I've been able to learn a lot about the process and and able to approach each year. I think uh, from a chef's perspective, a little bit more informed um, as to what's going on on the farm and what goes into it. So I can think about when I'm thinking about dishes, I can um, know that it's going to be a couple months or before we're going to get this or that product, and I'm going to know how long we're going to have it, and I'll know that it'll be this way at the beginning of the season it'll be this way at the end of the season so so like some of your cooking some of like the dish composition might change to a lot for the changes in the quality or the not i don't want to say quality but the characteristics yeah yeah absolutely and that that was a a big um consideration in how we created the menu at parish all to start we knew because of the way we wanted to work, which was strictly with, with farmers in this area, and we knew that we'd be getting a lot of stuff from our farm, um, we'd have to have room uh, to adjust because things were not going to be consistent. You know, we couldn't count on the same size and shape of leaves coming in every week from the same purveyor. You know, we're going to have some variation, um, which led us to you know, create a menu that would... One of the ways we thought about it would we want to create a menu that incorporates ingredients and has a sort of formula... Um, that makes sense not just for us as cooks and chefs where you know we could have consistency every time but actually makes sense for farmers like how is our menu going to be something that a farmer would like to would make it easier for a farmer to sell to us if they if they have a an ever-changing product yeah Yeah, sure and so george you you definitely did research you said we're primarily using uh elliot coleman and his work as as a reference point um so transitioning from like sitting, you know, in your Brooklyn apartment, reading the book to coming up to this, you know, green lawn, where did, where did you start with, uh, you know, what were kind of some of the first things that you did and how has kind of the planning or layout of the farm kind of changed over the years? Yeah. I, I mean, we started out just, um, with a shovel and a rake and, um, the first year and my goal was to try to plant as much area as, as the footprint of egg, which is so it's a thousand square feet. It's not a whole lot of it, it, it's plenty of restaurant, but it's not much not much of a garden. Um, but it it was what we could manage with no with no power tools and not a whole lot of time or experience. So um, and that was really just based on stuff I remembered from growing things in Virginia growing up, or um, you know, it's pretty pretty haphazard. Uh, the second year, we did a lot more sort of real planning about like laying out um areas and you know uh envisioning rotations a lot of those didn't really pan out because someone else would go up to plant and not you know only read half the memo and you know so i mean i think one of the most amazing things that happened the first year was we planted the entire summer's worth of beets in one fell swoop all the beets and all the lettuce in one fell swoop so we had thousands and thousands and thousands of beets and heads of lettuce that all came ripe at once so it it sucked from a um you know <laughs> having having like a nice even rotation through the summer but it was interesting to see you know you can harvest beets for a long time and you can leave them in the ground for a long time and it was interesting to watch how they change it was interesting to see how the lettuce changed over the course of the summer and that led us to a lot of thoughts about the third year we did it um, when we had an actual um someone actually living up there full-time um, thinking it through, plotting it out, uh, and it helped us sort of have a sense of, you know, how much space, to, how much time to leave between rotations, and how much space to dedicate to various things, and how much lettuce could we actually use in a stretch, and um, and so that third season was when we got very uh, formal about uh, rotations and and successions and stuff, uh, and I'll you know Chrissy. Chrissy went and studied with some people at Hawthorne Valley for a little bit to get some sense of it. 
But a lot of it, you know, a lot of it came through reading and experiments and keeping track of what we had done in the past and remembering what we'd done and seeing what worked. Now, is the only outlet uh, outlet for what you're producing the restaurants? Yeah. So, when you have kind of the bumper crop or kind of the crop that doesn't really pan out, you're you're kind of scrambling essentially to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, we're really lucky as a farm because we don't. Um, I mean, the restaurants don't depend solely on what we have, so they can always go to the market and get other stuff. And um, it, and it's no it's no huge financial burden if we can't use everything we get. So we compost it, or uh, a lot. I mean, I would say probably more than anything, if we have more than we need of something, we'll just leave it in the ground and see what happens. It's, it's interesting to see. I had a, I remember having this. Um, experience with a certain kind of butterhead lettuce the first year of like tasting it week after week after week that year we had so much of it and just tasting how it changed as as the summer warmed up and as it stayed in the ground longer and how it became more bitter and how you know sometimes the bitterness was off-putting but then you think about it in a different context and think of something else to do with it so it was a kind of leisure that we have that a lot of other farmers don't have because there was no there was very little pressure on us to you know to support ourselves as a farm and when we, when we get like a, a surplus amount of beans or beets you yeah. know when you're sending them down to a kitchen obviously to a degree a farmer could do this as well but we have people there who can process them and pickle them and right. store them um to use later in the year and we don't have that sort of stuff and that's actually essential for us to do a parish hall especially um so it, it, it's kind of nice to have that that relationship there you know we may not have all the space on the menu that given week for the what we harvest but for the most part, we're able to put it up and keep it for a time when we are going to use it. Yeah. Kind of extend the season. Well, we are going to move to just a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the farm kind of in the kitchen and, and how that informs your work. So hang tight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Maurice Narcisse by Eula on the Heritage Radio Network.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. For more information, visit Kane5.com. We are in studio with George Weld and Evan Hanser of uh, Ag and Parish Hall. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are talking about uh, restaurants and farms and, and re- you know restaurants that have farms like you guys do. So one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, and you guys have touched on this a little bit, is how the um, uh, aspect of growing food translates to the culture of your kitchen, I think both through the menu development, but also I'm, I'm more curious like for your staff in the front of the house, in the back of the house, I mean, what sets, uh, th- does that change the way people work or think about the food that they're, they're working with and, and in what ways? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, the produce we get from the farm is amazing. It's wonderful to work with um, from a cook's perspective just because of the quality and the freshness of it. But I think the greatest benefit I would say we see out of, out of having the farm is the way it changes um, our employees' perspectives and excites them about the work we do. Um, you know, 
we say to kind of anyone who asks this sort of question, you know, that you'll see a, a marked difference in anyone who works for us who has gone up to the farm and come back and come back to work, whether it's a cook or a server, um, because they've gone up there and they've seen seen the farm firsthand and been able to be out in the field and uh, do a harvest or do some planting and put some work into into the food that we're going to end up getting back at the restaurant. Um, and those that sort of experience and that, that memory uh, has proven to be extremely strong um, for, for everyone who works with us. There's, we always tell the story about a, a chef at Egg right now, Ed Quish, uh, going up to the farm last year and um, planting a uh, two, two years ago um, and planting a, a ton of potatoes um, and he was out in the sun all day and he got like terribly sunburned he was like hilling potatoes really hard work and I had like I had set up this thing with uh, Cornell to get us some potatoes that they were developing for New York soils particular, uh, specifically but I couldn't go up that weekend to, to help out so of course everyone's like cursing me like why does that why did Evan order all these freaking potatoes <laughs> like, <laughs> this is ridiculous he's not even here um and Ed came back all sunburned. He's working in the kitchen, and it's hot, and he can't stand to be in there. Um, but when those potatoes finally get, got down to us after they're grown, like it, it was such a like, it brought back all those memories of working up there and being there months ago. And it's kind of like connecting to an earlier time in the year. Um, and you know, when you put that much work into growing a, a potato, you're not gonna you're not gonna burn it. You're not gonna overcook it. You know, you're, you're gonna treat it really carefully. Um, and uh, and he did, and then I think in that way, like the food and the attention that's paid to it, um, improves just just by uh, having that proximity to, it, to where it comes from. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely when I was cooking at Gramercy Tavern, went through these periods where I'm like, we look around my fellow line cooks, I'm like, you guys know that the food doesn't just come from the walk-in, right? right? right. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's a multitude of steps before this, and. Um, there's also a multitude of steps, I think, after it. Now, George, you just published this kind of interesting article in the Edible publication on closing the loop, where you're looking at, um, you know, the unspeakable, you know, parts <laughs> of the nutrient cycle. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, people talk about, you know, you know, growing food, distributing, you know, cooking it, but then there's like this whole waste issue. And even if you are cooking really carefully at a restaurant and making maximum use of kind of the produce or the proteins that you come in, there's still a fair amount of waste. And, and how do you kind of deal with that at the restaurants? And how does that um, connect with a farm if, if it does? Yeah, well, I mean, I think most of, the, most of the answer to this question, happily, is not unspeakable, but uh, has a lot to do with the way that, I mean, as everyone's saying, like when, you, when you're actually working with the produce on both sides of the, um, you know, the, the delivery, you know, when you're, you're planting it or harvesting it, um, when you bring it into the kitchen, you're much less, um, you understand that what an illusion consistency is um, and how important it is, like when we talk about using things in their entirety, like how important it is because it's exhausting to do that work in the first place and um, you know you're not getting any, you're like we're not getting anything else this week, this is it, so what are you going to do with it, make, make the best of it. Um, so I think, especially at Parish Hall, we're, pretty Evan does an amazing job of like finding ways to use everything uh, so getting and, and so much of that has to do with getting past the idea of consistency and things being the same all the time and um, you know being able to rely on you know putting the same thing on the menu every day uh, so so that's a big part of it and then uh, I don't know beyond that like I, I think there's a much bigger kind of cultural discussion that has to happen about uh, what happens to waste because what happens to waste after it's gone through us um, as humans <laughs> when we uh, and the things that we put in our body that we like we I, I think for me the, 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 the crystallizing moment was sitting in the soil nutrition class um, at a farming conference and thinking about how we were trying to like reincorporate um, nutrients into the soil by using manure from animals or using compost, you know, which is the traditional way of thinking about how you deal with waste in restaurants. And, we, you know, we compost all our stuff at Egg and Parish Hall, and a lot of times we'll get stuff back up to the, to the farm from there. And, and, if, and it's great, but these soil scientists were saying, like, yeah, well, you know, it's not really doing the job. There's still a lot of nutrients leaving the, the cycle, and so the, the audience was kind of resisting this until the finally were like, no, basically when you go to the bathroom, that stuff's gone for good. That's not coming back to the soil. And everyone said this, like, quiet moment of like whoa <laughs> 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 I hadn't thought about it that way it's a pretty 
pretty shocking thing to to consider when you when you do start thinking about it because all those things that we think about needing to reincorporate into the soil you know after you know cattle have grazed on grass or after you've trimmed your vegetables and put them in a compost bin they make up a a pretty small portion of what actually gets extracted from the soil when we grow stuff on it um i think it it makes you think a little bit more about the the um the extractive nature of agriculture you know even at its best it's still it's still withdrawing like it's taking stuff out of the bank account so to speak and also about the um the sustainability of our of our waste system and um how we're going to think about dealing with what hits our sewage system um which which has ramifications for you know everything from those you know the little signs you see on the on the painted on the sidewalk about like you know don't pour stuff down the drain here to you know medicine you take and um the liquid plumber you pour down the drain like all those things end up affecting our soil which ends up affecting our ability to grow things healthily um i mean it's it's a much bigger issue than i i can't even get wrap my head around but it's something i think we neglect to talk about yeah, sure. I mean, and I th- oh, it's like one of the the challenges and one of the exciting things about being able to uh, so come back to the table, so to speak, in these discussions around food production and consumption. Is it's a little naughty in that the more you know, the more you're like, shit. There's a lot I don't know, and yeah. there's all these other really big things to think about. And I mean, how do you prevent yourself from kind of getting o- overwhelmed? I mean, where do you go to seek refuge from kind of some of those those pressures? I mean, is that a quiet space in the kitchen, or is it like eating a delicious? you know piece of whatever sharing it with someone i mean where what's your like kind of quote-unquote like happy place uh it, it might be you know in some ways the farm you know like going up there is everyone will tell you is like one of the more peaceful things you can do um here i think you know for me it's uh, oftentimes just either working in the kitchen you know with people like when, when i'm like cleaning vegetables you know um it's one of the more meditative times I have, you know, if I'm like, peeling, um, right now we have baby shallots and, and green garlic, you know, just starting to come to the market and peeling off layers of that and trimming the roots and just thinking about spring right now is kind of like a, the moment where I feel like, all right, like things, everything, you know, no matter how many events we have or how, how much, uh, of this sort of like, uh, these issues with the food system are on my mind or how, who quit that week, you know, like th- that's the kind of stuff that could be pushed aside when you're just thinking about um like the pleasures of, of doing this work you know we have a i mean we sort of have a mantra at the kitchen in the restaurants where bank we approach everything like with an eye towards improving it um sort of written over the over the over the doors everything is improve everything you encounter um i think one of the one of the uh, sort of morally easy things about working in the food business is it's we came to it when it's so messed up like from everything from you know labor relations to pollution to you know gas consumption I mean, there's a million ways million things you can look at that can can overwhelm you we can it's every one of those things is easy to improve a little bit you know and so you know when you get overwhelmed by the thought of the things you're you know r- flushing down the drain um turn around and like figure out ways to you know treat the people you work with better or um develop better relationships with your suppliers i mean there's there's we interact with so many different parts of the food system and with so many different people in it um and all of it needs to be improved on like there's there's no part of it that's perfect uh that i i sort of i sort of think of it as like we're sort of like on this lazy susan's so like turn around like oh we can do a little bit better with that and then we'll go over here it's like having a bunch of kids like you can only you can't fix everybody at once but you can fix a little bit of everything at, at, <laughs> at a time, a time. Yeah. yeah well that is one of the, the things that i you know i would love to kind of hear your feedback on you know you mentioned earlier that the the farm doesn't have the kind of pressure of quote-unquote like needing to be successful in a financial like the financial security of the farm is undergirded by things other than what you produce there yeah. um and then i think the both of the restaurants that you run in brooklyn um are you know very lovely farm to table um restaurants that people really love and and we've been having this kind of broader conversation here at the network with regards to you know sustainability and finding a balance between something that is can be held up as like a media darling oh look at these great chefs and they're doing this farm to table and they have a farm and it's so awesome and you know 
the reality behind that being like wh what is the impact um, are, are those the right people to be giving press is that a model that we can scale in some way that makes sense and I'm just curious like what your response to that kind of you know questioning might be yeah I mean, I, we wrestle with these questions all the time I mean even to the point like when we were talking about opening parish hall we talked at times like is this the right thing to do like is this really do we need restaurants um, are they good for the world um, and in some some cases I think the answer is like well we can do a better job of it like they're going to be restaurants we can do a better job of it than other people so let's do it um, we can be more just or more more equitable um, so let's do it let's give people a better option than what they've got um I think, you know, with the farm, one of our concerns initially that we've always sort of said, like, we don't want to replace the farmers that we use who do depend on, you know, who do have to sell all their produce. Like, it's never been a goal of ours to try to pr grow all of our own produce because we love the people that we work with um, who, who do, frankly, a better job at, at growing than we'll ever do because they're dedicated to it and they have been for a long time. Um, I definitely think, you know, there's... I think it's an important conversation to have. I think one of the, one of the things that we think about a lot with restaurants is um, whatever their problems are, they're able to employ a lot of people. Um, and we can do... Uh, we need jobs, um, and we need good jobs. And so a lot of our focus has been on trying to make the jobs that we give people good jobs and make sure that they are jobs that people feel like they can settle into and not that they're just trying to, to do for a while, you know, when they're in their early 20s burn themselves out and then move on to some, you know to something else a quote unquote real job uh, but really to say like we're working in food uh, restaurants can touch on every part of it um, how can we make this work fulfilling sustainable for each of every one of us individually um, make it work as a business overall and I mean I think there 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 uh, it's hard it's hard to squeeze enough money out of any part of this to make you feel like we're all we're all sitting pretty and feeling great about everything. Um, I still look at people who work in the the kinds of environments I used to work in, who make tons more money than any of us will ever make doing what I I was like we don't need, we don't need people doing that kind of work and you don't work that hard like it's frustrating to see where money lands but uh, it's it's also important I think to remember that we're getting. Um, uh, that we are having an impact, and that the stuff that we work, the stuff that we do, matters. And that when uh, when we we leave work at night, we don't have to think like, well, someday I'll get around to doing something that I've like. I'll go, I'll make a difference. Like we're doing it. It may not always be perfect, and um, it may not be the best solution. But it's I think it's better than what uh, it's better than a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, well, we are just about out of time. I know, Evan, you have a kind of a fun event coming up this evening, right? Tonight, yeah, we're we're involved with a uh, fundraiser for uh, Brooklyn Grange Community Farming uh, Program. We work with them really closely, um, and we're doing a, uh, a fundraiser at the Brooklyn Brewery called the Meatball Slapdown. Uh, it's a bunch of different restaurants. I, I know the Pines, uh, Buttermilk Channel. I think Mile End is going to be there. Um, we're all making different types of meatballs. Um, people are going to show up and eat them and, and choose a, a winner and then all that you know all that's going to benefit um, a couple of charities so we're pretty excited about that I know you're just talking to Ben you know before this so it'd be cool to see him tonight yeah yeah definitely I think tickets are 50 bucks they're still available you can get them through I know Brooklyn Kitchen and probably just uh, do a little Google for the meat, meatball slap down slap down, slap yeah, down. Yeah. <laughs> um, then, then, then you'll be all set with your plans for the evening well George, Evan, thank you so much for oh, joining you. us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. So if you want to find out more about Egg, Parish Hall, or Goat, Go Goat Fall Farm, you can visit them, www.eggrestaurant.com or parishhall.com or goatfellfarm.com. Uh, as always, this, like all 30 of our weekly shows, are available for free as a download through iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher Smart Radio or visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.com. Org. If you like what you hear and believe in what we do, I hope you'll consider clicking that donate tab and becoming a member today. Stay tuned in. Uh, next week on the Farm Report, we'll be talking mushrooms. So Thursday, 1 o'clock. Hope to see you back here. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. hot at the green market you're about to find out now it's the grow nyc market update all right thank you for tuning in this is another episode of the grow nyc market update we are on the line with liz carollo and we are about to kick off our new series um exploring the neighborhood markets. So I'm excited, Liz, to hear what we'll be uh, starting off with. Great. Yeah, I'm going to start off with my own neighborhood, um, my home market, the Greenpoint McCarran Park Green Market. It's located in the heart of McCarran Park, smack in the middle of the dog run and the running track and soccer field, um, uh, just north of Williamsburg, between Williamsburg and Greenpoint. Uh, the market opened in 1997, so it's going on its 16th season this year. And we, we only have a handful of markets that are street closures, and this is one of them. So it makes for a really wide walking space in between the farm stands and plenty of room for a diverse group of farmers. There's also a really large courtyard um, with tables and chairs adjacent to the market, so plenty of places to take a load off and drink some coffee after your shopping trip. Nice, nice. And so who are the kind of farmers and and products that we can expect to find at this market? Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier, and um, I remembered a story from a couple years ago. I was walking through the market doing some shopping, and I overheard a girl say, this market is okay, but a little small, nothing like Union Square. And I swear I wanted to shake her and just yell, open your eyes. The market has tremendous diversity, really affordable produce from the Black Dirt region of Orange County from SNSO Farm, um, organic vegetables and eggs from Long Island, organic beef pork and chicken, consider Bardwell cheese, turkey and turkey sausage, mushrooms, red jacket, fruit and juices, Ronnie Brook milk and yogurt, baked goods, um, Cayuga Pure Organics breads, flowers and grains, cut flowers, plants and herbs, and it boasts a weekly food scrap and textile collection. So I'd pass up the chaos of Union Square Saturday any old day for the serenity of a Brooklyn farmer's market, especially one where I can get all my shopping done. Nice. So, well, aside from kind of avid market goers like yourself, what's kind of the, what's the vibe at the market there? Like who are shopping? What's the general makeup of the market goers? Yeah, the market bridges the burgeoning Williamsburg neighborhood and the Polish neighborhood of Greenpoint. So you're bound to see a lot of families, um, kids and dogs, I call our weekend markets kids and dogs markets because it seems to be what they're full of. Um, Sometimes those families are lingering for hours, catching up with friends and neighbors, participating in market events and activities. There's also a lot of Polish families who get out early and shop, uh, loading up on cucumbers for pickle making and honey and bee products. And last year we hosted a borscht cook-off with a couple of Greenpoint restaurants, all made with local beets of course. Um, I think sometimes it just takes some delicious delicious borscht to overcome a language barrier. I, you know, I am <laughs> ready to sign up for that experiment anytime, any place. It was great. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, so say folks, you know, are coming out to the neighborhood to, to check out this market. I mean, how can they really like make a day of it? What else is going on uh, around the market? Yeah, we're trying to do a big push this year and get people to visit markets in other neighborhoods and, you know, not just to go to the market, but to kind of see the neighborhood and, and check out some of the other restaurants and things to do and there's no shortage of um, fun stuff going on in Williamsburg and Greenpoint. Right next to the market is Urban Rustic, and you'll see the farmers wheeling over boxes of produce all day. They buy um, from a lot of our producers. They have coffee and really tasty food. Other neighborhood food spots that are devoted to the market are George Weld, and I just heard him on the Farm Report. We're big fans of George. So Egg and Parish Hall, Liza Queen's Pot Liquor, um, Marlowe and Sons and Diner, Salty has incredible sandwiches, uh, the Always Fun and Filling Smorgasburg along the waterfront, uh, uh, one of my favorites is a restaurant in Greenpoint called Eat. It's awesome, and they even have a CSA pickup spot there, and they're almost 100% devoted to buying local. Um, 
and of course, any number of places to get kielbasa and pierogies along Manhattan Avenue and Greenpoint. And then when you're adequately stuffed and, stuffed and ready to burn, out, burn it all off, there's the sprawling McCarran Park, the new McCarran Pool, which is huge and free, open in the summertime. Um, of course, taking a dip is perfect summer activity. Also nearby is the Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant, which I admit doesn't <laughs> sound like the most inviting place, but it really is beautiful. They host a quarter-mile nature walk along the water and gets points for also being educational. You can learn about wastewater treatment and harbor water quality while you stroll. And I would be remiss not to mention the Brooklyn Kitchen, only a hop, skip, and jump away from the market, one of my favorite places to kill a few hours, attending any number of their food-centric classes and shopping for kitchen equipment. And City Reliquary, really fun Williamsburg Museum. um, They have a collection of New York City artifacts, and then they have community members who who show off their collections for certain times. Um, I think the entry fee is like 50 cents, so no breaking the bank while visiting that museum. Nice. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, it's a great kind of little purview. And I, I suppose folks can expect over the of the course of the next couple of weeks on the on the market update to hear about a slew of other neighborhood markets. I'm really looking forward to kind of exploring and then exploring. Great. Um, as far as, you know, events and kind of general market happenings, what else should we have on the radar? Yeah, it's coming up in a couple of weeks, but April 17th at Cinema Village, our director, Michael Hurwitz, will be sitting on a panel um, after a, uh, a screening of a movie called American Meat, um, talking about industrial meat production in the country and kind of our answer to that. He'll be on the panel with uh, farmers Mike Yezzi, restaurateur Peter Hoffman, and Robert LaValva, and the panel discussion is going to be focused on markets in New York City. So that'll be really interesting to see those four um, speak, and I highly recommend people pick up their tickets now because I think it's going to sell out. Um, Also coming into the market in the next couple of weeks, ramps. We hear they're right around the corner. This week I saw wintered over broccoli rob, picked some up. It's my favorite spring ingredient. So glad it's finally here. I made broccoli rob pesto for the first time last night. It was so good. Um, And then we're doing Farmer Appreciation Month kind of at all of the markets. And at Union Square this week, you can pick up cards that we've pre-made and and sign them and fill something out and say something nice to your farmer and hand them off. And then April 20th, um, as we're approaching Earth Day, we're going to have 11 Madison Park. Very excited about this. um, Host a book signing, and they're going to be giving out samples of food at Union Square um, starting at 10 a.m. on April 20th. And that's going to be a preliminary event leading up to Food Book Fair, which will take place in Brooklyn in early May. But um, we're going to start spreading the word about that soon highly recommend people get um, informed about Food Book Fair and look on their website and plan on going to that. Awesome. Well, great. Thanks for the great update and look forward to checking in again next week. Great. Thanks, Erin. All right. So if you want to find out all the details of what's happening at all of the markets across the city, definitely check them out by visiting grownyc.org backslash our markets. You can also stay uh, up to date by following them on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, or whatever your preferred social media And as always, tune in every Thursday for another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. This is Rooftop Farming with Ben Flanner, a weekly update on heritageradionetwork.org live from the Brooklyn Grange. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We are on the line with Ben Flanner, founder of the Brooklyn Grange, and we are excited to hear on this beautiful spring day what is shaking over at the farm. Right. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Um, it's going good. There's, there's a lot shaking. We're excited to feel like the weather's taking a little bit of a turn for the warmer. Um, we got seeds germinating all over the place, um, but especially starting last week once we got a couple, couple warm, sunny days. Um, to start, first of all, with the outdoor, the direct sown bed, um, which includes lettuces, different salad greens, radishes, and Japanese turnips. Um, they're, they're all popping, and some of those have been in the ground for almost a month. Um, but uh, 
if they don't get the perfect temperatures or the, the you know the environment where it warms up enough during the day, which we didn't really get, they all come. So we're going to have a little bit of a we're going to have a good strong wave of that stuff, which will be coming in about 25 days or so. We also have carrots and peas in the ground, but they're not up yet. But that's that's uh, not untypical because they take a little bit longer and they were put in a little bit more recently. And so we're excited. Oh, What's that? Sorry, I just, can I ask, just, and I, I feel like a little silly asking this, but when you say, you know, the seeds have germinated, w- what exactly does that mean? That means that, so when, when we put a seed into the ground, um, you give it moisture, you give it the proper temperature and, and the proper environment, which means not too moist, because if you really soak it, like if it's in sitting water, it'll die. And if it dries out too much, then it'll also die. So um, you apply a proper amount of, of, of moisture to it, and then um, after typically between, say, 5 to 15 days, depending on the seed, it'll germinate, meaning that it, it pops and a, a tiny little sprout comes out. And you typically have the seeds in the ground between, say, a quarter inch to an inch, depending on the type of seed, uh, so buried underneath. And then the, the little sprout comes out, it pushes for the, the light and the sun, and it emerges out of the soil. Got it. Thanks. You are welcome. Um, so speaking of germinating, lots more of that going on in the in the hoop house where we have the seeds in, that are that are in there need a little bit warmer temperature. Um, and those are the tomatoes, the peppers, and the eggplants, and they've all been coming up. We've had thousands of them germinate in their little uh, seedling trays. And then um, also, which something else that we started in the the hoop house, which I, I spoke about several weeks ago, was the kale. And uh, this is now the fifth week of it since we planted it, and we started taking that outside. Um, moved. So we, we planted them in the, the, the black seedling trays, which are 10 inches by 20 inches, so they're a rectangular um, plastic tray. And each one of them has 98 cells in it, so it's fairly small little holes for each kale seed. Um, if you were to imagine it, it's 17 going the long way, along the 20-inch span, and then seven, sorry, 14 going along the, the long way, and then seven going along the narrow way. And we put a, one seed in each cell, and kale has a really high germination rate, so we got at least 95% germination, meaning pretty nearly every cell has a, one healthy plant in it. And this week, we were looking at them, and, and the, the ways that you test are by looking at the root ball that's underneath in the soil and seeing if that's starting to really fill up the volume that's available to it and then also looking at the leaf that is out of the, out of the soil. And the leaf was probably about four inches tall by now. It's, it has the, the seed leaf, which is um, the, the natural leaf that comes out with the seed, and then it starts to develop uh, what we call the true leaves. Um, and they're different shaped, and you can clearly tell the difference between them. And it's starting to develop two to four true leaves, and the stem's getting a little bit stronger and um, the roots starting to fill up the volume of its, of its uh, cell. So we took them outside, and we planted uh, uh, about 1,000 kale plants into the outdoor area yesterday. Um, so just to go a little bit more into detail about how we do that, I thought that would be interesting. Um, so we prepare our beds, and our beds are 40 inches wide, and um, these ones that we put them in were probably about 40, 50 feet long, maybe 60 feet long. And um, we, we, we till in the cover crop, make sure that, that any significant healthy roots are, are turned up or, or killed so they're not going to compete with the crop that we're putting in. And then we blend in just a very small amount of alfalfa meal, which is a natural, organic, uh, mostly a nitrogen provider. It basically will, will break down in there. And... Um, and then we also put about a uh, half inch to an inch of, of fresh compost on the top of the bed. We rake that in. And this compost was unique. Um, it, it's, it's good compost that we made, but also at the same time, we weren't sure if it had reached quite the high, high enough temperatures to kill all the, the seeds that can be in it. Because when we make our compost, we put tomatoes, tomatillos, tons of different weeds, peppers, all these different inputs, and many of them contain seeds. And if the compost doesn't reach a hot enough temperature, you don't know for sure if all the seeds are dead. So if you top dress with that, meaning you put an inch or so on top of the bed, and there are a lot of seeds, especially once it starts to turn a lot warmer, they will compete with the crop that you're trying to grow. 
So, as a sort of uh, buffer to that, we, we still took the risk and used this compost, whereas we could have cured it for another year or something like that to kill more seeds. Um, then we top-dressed that with chocolate husk, which we picked up from the Mass Brothers last week. And um, it's basically the byproduct of making chocolate. Uh, it's from Williamsburg. It's a, a waste product that they'd be throwing away otherwise. And um, the shells on the outside are, are very dry, they're very heavy, and they contain some nitrogen. And they can also suppress the weeds if you put a little layer of them down. And they also contain moisture. It's essentially a mulch. It's a, a nice mulch to use. So we we put all those layers on, rake it out real smooth, and then we plant, we dig little holes and put in the kale plants. And I uh, will keep you posted on how they're doing. Awesome. Wow. Thanks Thanks for uh, taking us through the, the the replanting process and look forward to keeping an eye with you on the kale plants. Um, how long do you think roughly before we'll be able to, to get a little taste of some? Uh, probably about a month. When, when you transplant a plant like that, kale goes through about one week of transplant shock, meaning that it, it takes about a week for it to establish in its new home. And the roots, the roots will kind of just be spreading out and trying to get their bearings and you won't see a lot of change in the leaves. But all of a sudden after that week, maybe eight, nine days, then they'll really start taking off and, and it'll be an amazing growth curve because the days will be starting to get longer than two will be into mid to late April. And by May, we'll definitely be getting some harvest off of it. Today's April 4th. Awesome. Great. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. And I definitely encourage folks out there, if you want to learn more about the Grange or get involved at the farm, visit them at www.brooklyngrange.com and tune in next Thursday. We'll bring you another rooftop uh, update. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.